I'm sitting here in my own house, minding my own Hello, this is High Camp, the podcast where I try to watch all 406 movies from an out-of-print gay film guide before I die. I'm your host, Brian Rucker, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Brian Thompson. He is a a writer, a journalist, a podcast host himself. That's right. Investigative journalist. Well, it's not a podcast. It's an investigative journalism program. An IJP. Yeah. Whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's? Um, and you have, uh, been hosting this IJP for a couple years investigating, well, as it says in the title, whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's. Well, yeah, it's two pronged, I guess, my approach to it. And the one is the investigation into why McDonald's stopped serving pizza. And the other is a activism arm of my, uh, my, uh, I don't know what you call it. My outreach program <laughs> for sure. um, uh, to try to bring McDonald's pizza back. Yeah, and this is, I think, a question that anyone from our generation has been, you know, turning over in their head for for decades now. Well, I mean, the, the people the people that remember it, uh, sometimes they think about it on a rainy night. And I think I do. Well, I don't know if it's like the Mandela effect. Uh, I don't know if I do actually remember it or knowing that you've been working on this has made me misremember that mm. I remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way. I want to taste that pizza again. Well, I really did remember it. I don't know. I, I, I could not tell you why um, I chose this particular topic in particular to do this stupid show. But I do have vague memories of it existing. And I remember being curious about it. Um, but then it went away. And you've gone all... I mean, you literally recently came back from Alaska. That's right. Uh, did you find any... Like any new information on your travels there? I found more than I could possibly have hoped for in Alaska. I went to Alaska because there is this remote island in the Aleutian Islands chain. Islands chain. Mm-hmm. Islands uh, chain. Aleutian yeah. Islands, Islands chain. chain. I think island singular mm-hmm. chain. It's the furthest west township in the United States. Okay. Right by the International Dateline, I guess. Uh, it's closer to Russia than it is to mainland Alaska. It was a three-hour flight from Anchorage, Alaska to get to this island. Uh, and it was a former military base that used to be very large, and they had a McDonald's, and their McDonald's was abandoned in the early 90s, around the time when McDonald's was serving pizza. So I tricked my listeners into giving me a couple of thousand dollars to go to this island and look at the McDonald's. But they parted... With their money happily. To I mean, it was totally guy. voluntary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I did set up my fundraising campaign purposefully to be as uh, least likely to succeed as possible. Uh, but it did succeed. And so then I had to go. <laughs> and I, I would, wasn't thinking this through beforehand. But I had to go immediately because if I didn't go immediately, then I would have to wait for the entire winter to pass and go in the spring. And then by that point, like nobody's going to be interested in this and yeah. I will have moved on on my show. And so I, it was very poor planning on my part. Um, but I did go and I did look at the abandoned McDonald's. Wasn't a lot of evidence there, but I was very surprised to learn that, that they do in fact have a, a vintage McDonald's pizza oven in, wow. their, in their dump uh, that I just barely missed seeing. 
The guy who put it there was not on the island when I was there. We okay. drove around searching for him. And then I talked to him on the phone afterward, and yeah, there's a there's pizza oven there. Well, and the mystery lives on. Yeah. Uh, so in my latest episode, I I, I heard that um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice, um, he part of his duties as a junior justice is to oversee the Supreme Court cafeteria. No. And when he got there, he saw that they didn't have pizza. So uh, he used his position of power to force them to have pizza, <laughs> and um, and. Their pizza, according to a review I read, takes 25 minutes to make, or at least to receive once you order it. What are they, like, baking it at 250? Well, I called the Supreme Court <laughs> cafeteria on the latest episode of my program and got all the information about it. But I'm trying to get the government to fund an expedition back to Alaska to retrieve the McDonald's pizza oven so they can put it in the Supreme Court cafeteria and oh, make, good. make more pizzas in a timelier fashion. Um, I think that's the, the important work that we should all be doing this year. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Yeah, the big news, uh, you know, on my end this week were, and now I like literally don't even care about it. I, uh, or the Oscar nominations, they came out a week. Well, not even a week ago when we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I look forward to this every year. I really enjoy award season, but then once the nominations are out, it's like, it's all over already. Um, I don't really get outraged about stuff. There's definitely some movies that I wish had been nominated, some performances. People are freaking out online about like JLo's snub, yeah. which I, I really liked her in that movie. I wish she got nominated, but I don't know that it's um I don't know that there's anything more to it than that. I don't think we need to like expend a lot of energy on her behalf. I think she's probably doing okay. Uh I'm sure she's fine. She's doing those commercials with her new boyfriend. Oh, husband, husband? Alex Rodriguez. I don't know if they're, they're engaged, at least. I'm not sure that they've well, they're doing joint couples commercials right. for some kind of Facebook uh, uh, surveillance technology that you can purchase for your home. Um, but I, 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 I enjoyed Hustlers. I love JLo. I, I've, I've, for a long time, I've, I've, I've not been upset. That's <laughs> too strong a word. <laughs> but I feel like she's not had the acting career I think she could have had. She's a very good actor and she always has been. Like I, I loved her in Out of Sight. Out of Sight and Selena. Mm-hmm. And you know, she's okay in some of those rom-coms. I, I think, I mean, part of it is like her, you know, opportunity uh, as, you know, this beautiful Puerto Rican actress. There's not maybe as many parts for her as there would have been if she was white. But I think also part of it is her career trajectory. She wanted to do a million different things. Yeah. And she never she never she never positioned herself as a serious actress. Yeah. I think partly due to she, you know, was a singer and she was a fashion icon and all this stuff. She could have like gone the Charlize Theron and Monster route and done some indie movie where she, you know, wears no makeup and and cries. Yeah. And she probably would have gotten nominated. And I think I I respect that she's never Try to do that, probably. Sure, if she doesn't want to do, like, yeah, follow her bliss. I say, I'm just saying that she had the potential to yeah. to have that career if she wanted it. I think, I think so too. So like, she has never been chasing Oscars, and so that would have been amazing if she'd gotten an Oscar nomination for this. But I don't, I don't think she cares as much as maybe some people that are fans of hers, and then like some other actors probably care about awards more than she does. Yeah, and when I saw Hustlers, I, I remember thinking, I re- I enjoyed Hustlers. I thought she was great in it. It's a fun movie. Um, but I do remember thinking like, I don't know if this is like what I would nominate where I have the person making all the choices for nominations, but it certainly seems like the type of movie that 
that would get nominated. Well, I don't know. It's it's not it's about like strippers and it didn't really have any buzz in other categories, which is unfortunate because I think it's mostly like a crime movie where like the jobs of the people doing the crimes at one point in the movie is stripping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, totally. It's not like showgirls or something like that, where it's like about the lifestyle of being no. a stripper as much as it is about like the. The lifestyle of being a of, uh, what a, a, a criminal. Criminal. Well, yeah, and it's a much more much more conventional movie than Showgirls. It's a movie that like anyone can go in and be like, oh, this is a movie with a three act structure and yes. the characters have arcs and stuff. Where Sh- Showgirls is like pure. It's certainly not as ambitious, no, no, avant garde, no. um, prestige as Showgirls. Absolutely not. Uh, I also think people because like the Academy has. Um, invited a lot of new people to join and diversified everything. So I think people were sort of counting on that too much to change things very quickly. And like when Moonlight won a few years ago, I think people took that as like this bellwether of change. When I, looking back on it, I'm like, oh, this, this was an anomaly. Like this, Mm -hmm. this was a very specific set of circumstances of Trump recently got elected. People had a lot of issues with La La Land, which was like the other front runner. And there weren't other movies in there to go up. So I think, I mean, Moonlight is a wonderful movie, but like people that were expecting something like that to happen every year are now realizing that no, like the, 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 the great movies rarely get recognized by the Academy and it's okay. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Uncut Gems was, was oh, yeah. like at the top of my list. For Absolutely. The year and, uh, it didn't get anything. No, but what are you going to do? And now it looks like our new front runner is 1917. Uh, Which I just saw last night. Oh, you saw last night. What'd you think? I liked it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, if you took the script and just looked at the script, I would say, you know, this is not much of anything. It's certainly not a, um, like a great war movie. And as much as like, it doesn't really show the consequences of the war, what led up to the war. No, there's no, there's no politics. The war has no, yeah, the war has no context. It's an adventure movie. Yeah. And it's an adventure movie that's like very technically well-made and it's like a fun ride. And, uh, yeah, it is a fun, and it's, it's shot almost like a video game. Very uh, much so. structured as well. Yeah. And each like, I mean, the color palette is different in every sort of level. Mm -hmm. Um, the things that the main characters have to do are different. So it it, it is cool because it doesn't get boring. It's not like just two hours in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then between every level, there's a video game cutscene with a British celebrity cameo. Oh my God. Yeah. Which I, I'm bad at like recognizing people. So there's a few, I recognized obviously Benedict Cumberbatch at the end um, yeah. and Colin Firth. But then the other people, like there's all these Game of Thrones people that I saw. I was like, oh, I don't remember them. And um, let's been at Colin Firth. Uh, there was um, uh, the pot priest from Fleabag. Yeah, who was he? I didn't. I saw his name at the end, and I don't even remember him in the movie. He was towards the beginning. He was the sort of like um, aloof uh, commander guy who gives him the flare gun. And he's like, if you die, if you get shot, like be sure to throw it back. Oh, okay. He was that guy. All right. And then there was, uh, what's his name? The, the guy who's the bad guy in like every movie. Uh, bald guy. Uh, British guy. Oh, oh, I don't know. Ah. <laughs> he's in the Kingsman movies. Why am I blanking? Strong. Str- ben Kingsley. No. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, it's all right. Anyway. He's uh, a great actor. Look at fine the man. Fine actor. Fine man. He was in there. Um. So, yeah, this, I mean, who knows if this thing will win. It won PGA. It won the Golden Globe. 
I am just losing interest day by day. I still think, well, Uncut Gems, but Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are my other two favorite movies of the year. Uh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, definitely towards the top of my list. Parasite, I really loved. Um, I don't know what I would... I keep... And I see, still love Joker. I like would not be. I would love just to see Joker win, just to see what pe- how people freak out on social media. I think it would be very funny if Joker was like the compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Win. <laughs> like, everything else's vote got split, and Joker wins on the preferential ballot. Yeah, Joker wins. The Ugh. more I think about Joker, the more I like it. I I bristled a bit when I first saw it, and I, I think my sort of general thoughts on it are that I I. I I'm all for most of the movie. The stuff that bothers me is the stuff that like tries to tie it into Batman. And um, oh yeah, that I think um, doesn't work. Yeah, that that like lo- made it a little silly. I mean, in Joker, it's very silly movie anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just loved that it got a reaction out of people, yeah. which like very few movies do. Uh, Especially like movies that 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 movie people like are usually very sort of um, I don't know like acceptable or like they have they they're pushing some sort of social ma- message and I guess Todd Phillips would say he's promoting a social mes- message but well that one thing I like about it is that if you try to 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 get some sort of political message or social message out of it you can get whatever message yeah, yeah, yeah. you want to get out of it and I think that's on purpose and I think that's like good I think that's probably what he was going for. And actually, that movie recontextualized my opinion of Todd Phillips. I don't necessarily think he's a great director or anything, but I used to sort of judge him by, like, more than Hangover, like, old school. Okay, Like, old school and maybe the first Hangover movie is sort of like this, like, this bro comedies. Yeah. And they are that. But after watching Joker, I reevaluated the Hangover movies. And especially just if you just take those three movies and you watch them in succession, Hangover 3 is not a comedy. Hangover 3 is a dark, nihilistic, it's an unpleasant movie to watch. And from what I understand, that's who Todd Phillips is. He's uh, He hates people. He uh-huh. hates everybody. And like the worldview that Joker presents is his worldview. Um, which I don't know if I agree with and I didn't, wouldn't necessarily. No, but that does make me respect him more if he's like critiquing. Cause I, I, I've only seen, I see, I saw the first hangover movie. It didn't do anything for me, honestly. And Mm -hmm. then I don't think I saw the second or the third ones, but that makes me sort of want to go back and watch if it is this like nihilist. Cause I think Zach Galifianakis has that streak in him too. Yeah. Like he more so than, I don't know, like Will Ferrell. I love Will Ferrell, but like he is a surfacey, like what you see is what you get with him Mm -hmm. when he's tried to go dark it never really works like didn't he he did he's done like a couple like indie movies where he's trying to be dramatic and a couple of like oscar Beatty yeah. kind of movies like. oh and, and then he's in that new force majeure remake with julia louis dreyfus have you seen the trailer for yeah, that yeah, yeah i mean i i like force majeure a lot but and i love those two actors but like does there really need to be a remake of this movie i've got an open mind yeah about okay it. but i will i think the perfect example of what you're talking about with will ferrell is like um on e- the first season of Eastbound and Down. Oh, he I still haven't like, seen that. That that show is a masterpiece, and it's got a very particular tone. And Will Ferrell has a recurring character in it that is too Will Ferrell for that tone. And I think it perfectly encapsulates. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. He's mm-hmm. funny. It just doesn't quite work for 
like Eastbound and Down kind of has, I don't know about one foot in reality, but it's got definitely got um, more of a grounding than your typical like Will Ferrell sure. thing. It's it's less wacky, uh, and it's certainly got like a dark heart to it um, that I don't think he can he can pull off that well. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. offense to Will Ferrell. No, I mean, I mean, and I, I'm not saying he, yeah, he's not he. There are depths to him, but he. Uh, there's just such an affability to him that like, the, yeah, the darkness, I, ne- I never really believe it from him. Like some other sort of comedians, even like a Jim Carrey, he, you could tell there's like a real darkness to him. No, Jim, Jim Carrey uh, says he's like, got some undiagnosed darkness yeah. going on. <laughs> in him. Ooh, did those... you see his comedians in cars getting coffee? No, I did not see his episode. of. I don't think they should have released oh, it. Oh, now I sort of want to watch it. It's, it does not paint him. Like I would, I, I somebody should call somebody after they, oh, wow. they see. If you love if if you know Jim Carrey and you love him and you want the best uh-huh. for him, you should get on the phone okay. after seeing that. Uh, the only full episode of that I've ever watched was the Michael Richards one. That one I, uh, I watched that one over and over and over again. <laughs> I, 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 I'm obsessed with that episode. It's fantastic. I could quote. I I can I could just like. It's like kids who go see Star Wars and can just like mouth along to it. I can do that with the episode of Michael Richards. Oh man, the part where he talks about playing chess with the homeless guy. Oh god. It's great. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Um what else have you been watching lately besides uh Eastbound Eastbound and Down and um Michael Richards? Well, I um you know what? I I you know what I should mention? I I watched it a while ago and I just sort of revisited it because my brother um, he watches a million things and he's always like binge watching everything. And he like had a gap in his watching and mm-hmm. he was asking like what he, what's like a show that has like several episodes, like enough that you could like spend some time watching, but it's like kind of self-contained that you could like knock out in like a couple of weeks. Sure. And there's this show on Amazon called Patriot. Oh, okay. That got, a, I got maybe a little bit of buzz when it first came out. Um, I heard barely anything about it at that time. And I certainly didn't hear anything about season two of it. No. And that show is incredible. I watched the first maybe two episodes Mm -hmm. and then I, I didn't like dislike it, but I just sort of didn't continue with it. It's got a particular tone. It's almost like a Hal Hartley kind of tone that I really respond to. And it just gets crazier and crazier as it goes. And season two is like really nuts okay. in a very good way. And it's clearly a show that like, you know, has a very particular vision and it looks like it costs a lot of money to make. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know why it's just been completely ignored. I but. think yeah, Amazon was sort of giving a lot of money to like just sort of weird creators for a while. I think cause you know, transparent was one of their first things out of the gate and mm-hmm. that did well. Uh, but now I think under the new regime there, they've just sort of stopped and they're, they're going whole hog on the, you know, Lord of the Rings thing. So maybe because like, uh, Fleabag was really successful. They'll, 
they'll go back into the more auteur stuff. Maybe I, don't know. I, I mean, I get well. Netflix releases like so many things. Yeah, I get they 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 premiered like four new shows like just last weekend or something. And most of them are trash. I mean, there's like now there's they're doing so many reality shows and all these like crime doc series that I just yeah. will never be able to catch up with. Oh, I have been watching Medical Police. I really oh I've yeah, Medical I haven't Police. started that yet. That's very funny. um that's Rob Corddry, the same people that did Children's Hospital, it's a sequel to Children's yeah. Hospital. Um, yeah. that looks really funny. I um. I happened to accidentally wander into the writer's room while they were writing that show and uh, comparing like what I saw up on the, uh, the board for like all the, how, how the plot unfolds to like the final product is, uh, is very funny. Well, I, I was listening to an interview with them and they said, because they had never worked on any, a show with any sort of serialization, Bef- when they were breaking the season, they brought in um, Craig Mason <laughs> to come in and help them. <laughs> and then I can't believe it. Uh, and then I guess he left, and they just sort of decided to start from square. Or like they were they they listened to what he had to say, but as they were actually making it, they had to sort of revamp everything. Which makes yeah, sense. and they they I guess probably for tax reasons or something, they shot it in Croatia for real. Whoa! So uh, it, you know, the show itself was supposed to be like take place in all these different cities all over the world. Children's Hospital was supposed to be in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, that was great. <laughs> but uh, but this show, even though, like, you know, it's, like, Croatia for, like, Kenya uh, a couple of times and stuff like that, it's just got, like, this weird European feel to it that makes it almost legitimately feel like a Bourne movie or something. Okay. But it's, like, you know, Children's Hospital style. Yeah, yeah. Shenanigans. And that's all on Netflix? That's all on Netflix. All right, to watch that. Um, I have been, cause I'm like literally a crazy person and I, I'm a Oscar nomination completist. I like mm. to watch every single movie that gets non- nominated in any category. Did uh, you see that anime movie? That anime? Uh, yeah, I've, well, last night I actually watched Klaus, the Netflix animated movie, which is, uh, which was nominated, which is like an origin story for Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, it was way better than I thought it was going to be. I really, Wait really a second. It. Is this? Because there was a comic book series called Klaus. Oh, maybe it's a based similar on similar thing. But he was be. like kind of like a muscly. Yeah. Sort oh, of. yeah. That's what it because so it's um Jason Schwartzman plays like a rich, foppish heir to like the postal service. His dad is like the postmaster general or something. And so, but they live in like a mansion. Uh, and his dad makes him because like he is uh you know not taking any responsibility for his life. His dad is like, well, if you're gonna get your inheritance, you have to mail 6,000 letters, like do it, you know, be a real postman. Mm -hmm. And they, he sends them up to not quite the North pole, but like some sort of Scandinavian adjacent country where there's these two clans of people are fighting with each other. Um, and then there's this retired widowed toy maker that lives in the woods named Klaus, who through many plot machinations, he gets, all the children in the town to write him letters so he can like, cause he has to, he has to um, deliver 6,000 letters. So he's like, okay, if all the kids write me a letter, I'll get up to that 6,000. And then he like befriends Klaus and then they end up making toys for the kids. And then like there's reindeer that has, so it's like every little Santa Claus specific something happens. We're like, Oh, that's where that came from. That sounds wonderful. And it sounds, it, it does sound horrible as I'm describing it, but for some reason, I also was uh, had like a margarita, mm-hmm. and I took a Xanax. Okay. Last night, and 
between all those things, I really enjoyed myself. What what did this get nominated for? A uh, best animated feature. Oh. Um, and the other thing I watched recently, because of this Oscar com- completist um, mania I have, was the Syrian documentary for Sama, mm-hmm. which is a woman. She's a journalist in Syria and her husband's a doctor. And so they didn't leave when Assad started bombing Aleppo and they had a baby and they just like recorded the trauma of living in like this war zone. And it's, I mean, it's extremely hard to watch. It's like everything you would assume this movie would be, it is, but it is pretty amazing that like they were able to record this. And then finally they, they do get out. Uh, And that one is streaming on Canopy. And I bet it could win because it's like such a serious subject. Huh. And that one's nominated for documentary. I don't think I had seen any of the documentary nominees. Honeyland. There, there's a lot of good ones. Honeyland, which is on Hulu right now, is really fantastic. It's about this Macedonian beekeeper uh, who just like lives off the land. And then these like create this like crazy family moves in trying to like um, industrialize beekeeping yeah. and, and, and sort of rape the land of, all this stuff and, and it's sort of like a metaphor for capitalism really because she's just trying to do it the old way and they like fuck up everything mm. uh that one's good and then the edge of democracy is uh about the brazilian elections and sort of it's not it doesn't um uh it doesn't like really go into the parallels between our government and brazil but you can't help but see the similarities because right now there's like a right-wing government uh, and there was a sort of a socialist Bernie like hero to Brazil that was arrested for quote unquote corruption, but it oh, seems, yeah, I yeah. kind of vaguely remember yeah. when that happened. This one, it, those two, well, all of them are great, but yeah, I would, and that one's on Netflix. So I would recommend all those. Yeah. I was a little surprised that Apollo 11 didn't get. It's nominated. because it's, um, it's all pre-existing footage and the doc branch doesn't like, like the Jane Goodall one didn't get nominated. Mm. The Mr. Rogers one didn't get nominated because it's all archival footage. Oh. And the doc branch nominates those and they like when the filmmakers actually shoot film. So if there's pre, yeah, pre-existing footage, they tend not to to nominate. Even though Apollo 11 was cool to watch. Yeah, I also wonder if that was like, because you know, a lot of these awards things, they only get seen on like a screener oh, yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. And I feel like that, particularly benefited from being seen That's in true. IMAX. Um, yeah, everybody, <laughs> you 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 and I both know that everybody watches all these screeners at the end of the year. And I always wonder, like, how many of these movies have people actually seen and as opposed to just, like, sort of half paid attention to, like, while they're on their phone? Oh, totally. Like, watching a blurry, watermarked <laughs> DVD. No, because, like, we know people that are actually, like, have power in the industry are like the stupidest, um, (laughs) like least thoughtful people that we've ever met. And you can't imagine the, like the crazy, like type a ADD personality you have to have to be like an executive or something would prevent you from actually sitting down and like paying attention to something for two hours. It is true. And like some of the people, some of the people in the industry, I'm not going to say actors, but a lot of them are actors. Well, yeah, yeah, like have just bad taste. Yes. Like, people talk about, like, you know, something, there'll be, like, a bad movie will come out. And everybody's like, you know, executives must have been meddling in this and blah, blah, blah. But you would be very surprised not having worked in the industry to know how often that those bad movies are probably 100% exactly what they wanted 
um, everybody involved from the top down, <laughs> the writer, director, everybody, because they have all have terrible taste. And I was listening to um, the Mark Maron with Brad Pitt and Leonardo oh. DiCaprio. And Brad Pitt said that Richard Jewell was one of the best movies he saw. Gotta say, I'm on Brad's side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it's one of the best movies, but I did enjoy watching that movie. But he was only talking about it in terms yeah. of the performances, which the oh, okay. made, but all uh, great. Uh, they're all good actors. Sure. They're, they're fun all good to actors, watch. yeah. Fun to watch. It's uh, <laughs> the Kenny Rogers impersonator. Uh, oh, my God. The chocolate donut that Richard Jewell eats. Um, the climactic yeah. emotional scene. Olivia Wilde doing an Elizabeth Berkeley and Showgirls impression for the entire movie. I was shocked i went and understanding the controversy about yeah. that character and i still was not prepared no she comes in like a tornado <laughs> um she seduce i mean i think i've even said this on the podcast so i'm repeating myself but like the scene where she seduces john ham by doing the macarena yes is one of the all-time classic this macarena scene which goes on longer than any macarena scene has ever gone on anything i think including things shot during the era of the macarena yeah I think you're supposed to watch. I got the impression during all those endless concert scenes that we, the audience of Richard Jewell, are supposed to be as thrilled to be seeing these concerts as the people who were there. Totally. What was? I don't even know the bands that were because it was li- they literally like had to be historically accurate. So like this was the actual band that was performing at the '96 Olympics, and then the character. Oh, because it was well, it was Kenny Rogers the first night? Kenny Rogers, and then the one during the bomb was someone that no one had ever heard of. I don't think. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, they had a very popular song but the oh, name yeah, of the yeah, band yeah. escapes me and i don't even remember what the song who knows is. look it up anyway um but yeah you were because yeah you were immersing as an audience member you were like being immersed in the concerts they just go on forever also there's this very weird thing going on especially during the kenny rogers scene where everybody in the audience is singing along to the song and their lips mouth they match the words being sung but the person on stage the kenny rogers impersonator is completely off. Oh my God. And is not singing the same song or at least not the same part in the song. And I don't know how that happened. No, cause Eastwood, sh- he shoots these things almost at like a Tyler Perry level. That's right. Like speed just uh, in and out. I mean, cause he's going to die soon. So he just needs to do as many as possible. One take he's out by five yeah. o'clock. Um, it's great. There are a lot of stories about that. Apparently on American sniper, re- it required a lot of post-production tweaking and Eastwood refused to stay in the edit bay longer than like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. So Bradley Cooper um, like did most of the. Oh, that's where he got the directing bug from. I that's what I heard, and and I know for a fact that because he gets out by five o'clock, he almost never does more than one take. They do a rehearsal, and then they do a take one, and that's usually it. But the rumor that I heard about Richard Jewell is that that movie is like significant percentage of Richard Jewell is the rehearsal, not even take one. Oh, wow. So the first time, yeah. Hey, I mean, but it, it, you, you do get sort of like a, I mean, you get inconsistent performances from people, but you get interesting performances from people. Well, he hires great actors. He's like, yeah. uh, he's like, he's like Woody. Yeah. He, he hires good actors and he gets out of the way. Have you seen the torrent of a rainy day in New York? No, it's I haven't seen it either, but it's like do it. It's like a huge hit in all over Europe. Like people are lining up around the box. I've heard it's good. Um, I heard it's pretty good, too. I might try to. I read. Do you read Hollywood Elsewhere? 
Jeffrey Wells? I don't, not religiously, but I am known to to, to click every once in a while. Well, anytime Woody Allen comes up, Jeffrey Wells, yeah. make sure to post an article about how we need to consider the views of Moses Pharaoh. And he, um, <laughs> he, he was set, he threatened to travel down to Tijuana to see a rainy day in New York in Tijuana. But I don't know if he ever did it. Make a documentary about that. That's Jeffrey a, Wells like, driving. First thing to, that pops in mind. Oh my god! Like Jeffrey, Wells, it's like Green Book, but with Jeffrey Wells and Sasha Stone driving to Tijuana. Jeffrey Wells, Sasha Stone, and his uh, Russian mail order bride yeah. Tatiana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. He's a column. He's, yeah. You go go to his website, and you're like, oh, this is like a this is like a WordPress blog from 2003. But you got to understand, it's not a blog. It's a column. He's a columnist. A columnist for himself. He's right. employed by nobody. And he doesn't publish blog posts. He files his column. <laughs> he, he files his so column. So like you don't do a podcast. <laughs> yes. You do an IJP. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. The Jeff Wells of podcasting. Uh, but yeah, he's like an anti-woke... Um, con- I don't know. He, like, he gets banned from like... Didn't he like get banned from Sundance or something? He calls Sundance now the wokester Khmer yeah. Rouge. And... Um, he, uh, he, well, I don't, I think he did get banned because he's like very belligerent and nobody likes him and he makes people uncomfortable just looking at him, makes you like skeeves you out and you don't yes. want to have him in a room. Oh, I was in, I, I think I told you this story, but I was at the Lemley Pasadena seeing, it was the German movie that got nominated for foreign language last year, the like three hour one. Yeah. And I was sitting behind Jeffrey Wells and some other old disgusting man. And Jeffrey Wells was just like eating a giant ice cream sandwich. Yes. Um, during the screening. And uh, I'd say about 35% of his columns are about how uh, any one particular person is too fat to yeah, be yeah, yeah. On, oh, yeah. uh, on screen. Um, yeah, so go to Hollywood. God, I should get him on the podcast. He'd do it. He would do it. Uh, all right, let's move on. We have been talking too long mm. about anything besides... <laughs> and we have a lot to say about this, or I do at least, I yeah. think. So I sent you a list of 406 movies, and you sent me back a few options... One of which was The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, mm-hmm. a movie I'd heard of before, I'd never seen. Um, what made you want to talk about this? It's from The Twisted Mind of Dr. Seuss. And uh, when I saw it on the list, I was quite surprised because you don't see it talked about very much. And I didn't see it uh, until fairly recently. It was... A few years ago at the New Beverly, they did a, a screening of it. And I think it was like some new restoration or something. I don't remember it looking particularly good. But um, they did a screening of it. And I remember seeing the trailer for it in front of something else at the New Beverly, which is why I went. Mm. And um, the trailer made it look really cool. And the title sounded cool. And it was like the only movie that Dr. Seuss ever made yeah he quit the movie business after this and i'm i'm like always been fascinated by like those writers who come to hollywood and fail miserably like i like uh the um yeah yeah yeah. um but uh so that's why i went and i saw it and then when i saw it I, i my mind was blown by um how obvious the metaphors are in it well yeah okay yeah um, in a way that's like, it seems very modern, like the sort of patterns of behavior of the titular Dr. T <laughs> are things that I don't know if anybody was even talking about 
No, I don't know that it was. Con- well, okay, so the the movie purports, or at least the the text around the movie at the time made it, uh, made it seem like this was an allegory about fascism. Mm. Um, but watching the movie, and I think you'll agree with this, this is about pedophilia. Yes. Absolutely, very hundred like percent, <laughs> and it made me insane after I watched this movie trying to find things talking about this, and I couldn't find anything. Yeah, no, uh, the the, I mean, I, I did a little bit of like looking around on the internet when when you asked me to do the show, and I saw there's an episode of Trailers from Hell, okay, um, where Joe Dante talks a little bit about it, and I think maybe one point in that like three minute video, he's like. You know, Doctor T represents a lot of things. Represents blah blah blah. This this and this and this. And it's like and and it, like some say he might even be a pedophile. Some say. <laughs> I mean, okay. So let before we get into the details, let me read the review of the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T by Mr. Paul Rowan. Uh, if this is the first episode of High Camp you're listening to, I stole the name of this podcast from a duo of gay film guides written in the 90s by uh, an amateur film critic and professional librarian from Duluth, Minnesota. His name was Paul Rowan. And here is what he has to say about The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. During the McCarthy era, Hollywood showed its loyalty by churning out several anti-communist parables. Of these, the most bizarre, the most stylized, the most homoerotic was surely The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. The star is Tommy Rettig, whom my generation will always remember as Jeff from the Lassie television series. Like any healthy, normal, red-blooded, clean-cut American chicken, Tommy hates having to take piano lessons. (laughs) Unfortunately, his widowed mother, Mary Healy, insists upon them. Piano playing equals classical music equals foreign tyranny, or so Tommy imagines when he has a nightmare about his instructor, Hans Conried. In the dream, Conried is keeping him prisoner in an elaborate gulag surrounded by an electrified barbed wire fence. Conried's ardent desire to capture 500 little boys, the 5,000 fingers of the title, and have them perform in unison at a super colossal concert. Towards the end, he's brainwashed Amer- his brainwashed American mothers who we surmise use their feminine wiles to bring husbands into the fold as well. Deep into the dungeons languish male proponents of other musical instruments, clad in tight pants and no shirts. Miss Healy is on the premises also. He keeps her in a deep hypnotic trance. While under his sway, she wears sexy Jean-Louis gowns. Once free, her shoulders are demurely covered. Just when Dr. Conrad seems to be on the brink of triumph, Tommy whips up an A-bomb and blows everything to smithereens. Conrad is clearly a commie, but he's, he's just as obviously a queen. For one thing, he's constantly dancing with men, usually Peter Lind Hayes, Miss Healy functions as a beard. In preparation for the huge recital, his quintet of ballets attire him in swishy finery. Undulating undies, lavender spats, a purple nylon girdle, a peekaboo blouse, a pink brocaded bodice, an organdi snood, a chiffon mother hubbard, and to top it all off, leather vests. Do you need further evidence? Well, we're told that he hates dogs and baseball. For a mirror reversal of this film, see the review of Storm Center elsewhere in this book. Well, I'm, I have no idea what that is, and I'm not going to read it now. Um, oh, that's all true. It's all true, but also, like, this guy doesn't... So he obviously at least sees the homoerotic context in Dr. Tewilliker's, like, faggotry, but they never... it. Like, this is about pedophilia and kidnapping little children. Yeah, and I suspect, sadly, that perhaps 
maybe even at the time that that review was written, and especially at the time this movie came out, sort of homosexuality and pedophilia were basically seen as the same thing. Absolutely. So, like, why would anybody separate the two? Yeah, no, it was one and the same. And even, yeah, like you said, Paul Rowan, I mean, he grew up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and there's so much, <laughs> there's so much internalized homophobia. I mean, we all have internalized homophobia, uh, but this generation had more so. So yeah, I don't even know that, I don't even, yeah, I don't even know that like gay guys at the time would have been able to separate the depiction of homosexuality from the depiction of pedophilia. Yeah. And all the communist stuff is certainly there yes. and certainly not hidden, you know, like the Dr. T is a hypnotist, which is like a real trope of all of that like red scare stuff at the time, like the commies were going to hypnotize us all because if you learn about like communist or socialist ideas, they sound pretty good. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, like he gets so, so terrified at the end because he thinks that like this, this chemical that the boy whipped up Pickle is, juice. is atomic. Yeah. And it's like, clearly he's like most terrified of being nuked and like all commies are and stuff like that. And even like, the, the his whole plot, which is to kidnap five hundred boys and use their five thousand fingers to to play a giant piano, is like kind of what you see in like North Korea, where uh, like the they can force children to be trained from birth to do one very stupid thing, and then you see these YouTube videos of like a thousand like little girls playing these little guitars perfectly, and everybody's like, oh how cute, and it's like that's that's not. That's not cute at all. That's horrific. Um, that's exactly what he's trying to do in this. So, like, all of that is there, but the specifics of like how he grooms young Bart, uh, the fact that like Bart is the only one that knows that anything's going wrong. Yeah, and, and then Bart's Chief. family. He's uh, his father recently died. His mother is is not paying attention to him. This is a, a perfect target for a pedophile to come in and like you said, to groom. And this, this kid has really no sense of self. Um, and, and Dr. Tewilliker is able to provide some structure for his life and, mm -hmm. and the punishment and reward aspect. Um, he tells the adults in his life, but they don't believe him. Yeah. Yeah. They're like fall under the doctor's sway. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Is... It's, uh, it's not, yeah, it's not even really subtext. It's like right on the surface, but, but yeah, yeah. I wonder in 1953, I mean, obviously pedophiles have existed <laughs> forever, but, uh, and even when we were growing up, I mean, I don't know what, what parents tell their kids now, but you know, we heard about stranger danger and, you know, don't get into a car with someone you don't know and uh, this stuff and, and, and kidnapping in the eighties yeah. and nineties. Uh, I remember just seeing posters of, of kidnapped children all over the place. And so you get some sense of there being danger from adults, but obviously you don't really know what, what is, what's the end game of being kidnapped? Exactly. What's the end, you know? And so it's like you, you have this, this, uh, this non-specific fear. Um, and I imagine no one was, was talking about this stuff uh, and everything was, was, covered up and you know the the kids that suffered this abuse were, were full of shame i mean everything from the catholic church to probably piano teachers and and people in their own family right because it's not a stranger he's a piano yeah. teacher he was like invited into the home which is i guess usually how that happens like the stranger danger thing you're right like when i was a kid i, I was taught to be scared of these people and when i was a kid there were like a couple of two or three times in my neighborhood where i was like outside playing and 
some guy like drove up in a car. It's like, come really? here. Exactly what wow. we were warned against. Never happened um, to me. But, uh, but yeah, we were never told like, oh, they want to molest you or they want to rape and murder you. Mm-hmm. It was always just like, you just don't want to get kidnapped because it's dangerous. Something bad is going to happen. Um, but now, yeah, like the real danger uh, is from much closer yeah. to home. And Dr. Seuss, I mean, cause he wrote, this is not based on one of his books. This was like an original screenplay that he wrote. And he, I mean, obviously he spent his whole career writing uh, books for children with like moral lessons. And I imagine that would have been really uncommercial if he wrote a whole book about like how to not get diddled by a pedophile. Yeah. So this was like, but I don't know the fact that not like I read a few reviews from the time and even reviews of like, uh, you know, when it was restored and stuff and no one is talking about the the obvious parallels and like what this movie is actually about and it just it was yeah it was sort of flabbergasting to me and it's also striking too that it's called the five thousand fingers of dr t and he's built this giant facility he lives in this huge crazy castle with this giant piano that's meant to be played by 500 children Mm. but it isn't until like the last five minutes of the movie that these other kids even show up they get busted on school buses you you see (laughs) you see this one kid and you hear about the 500 kids and it is um i mean the the production design is amazing in this movie like it's it's really creatively done or i mean it reminded me of uh when i was little and saw willy wonka in the chocolate factory for the first time it's Mm -hmm. like this um this this complete world that's different from your own but still you can it's like uh tangible like it, it it feels it feels real it feels like you could be inside of it uh and that's sort of this is like I mean, the chocolate factory, there's nightmarish elements, but it's also um, really enticing. This one is like sort of pure nightmare. Yeah, but I think that's some of like the failure. I think like the reason that anybody talks about this movie now is because of the Dr. Seuss thing, not just the fact that Dr. Seuss like conceived it and wrote the lyrics for the music and everything and and, and wrote the story. I don't think he wrote the screenplay itself, but... Yeah, it's um, he and one other writer are credited, so I'm not sure. If, yeah. yeah. But the, he had like a huge hand in the design and all that stuff, and it definitely feels like Dr. Seuss. But I I think that it is um, overly ambitious in a lot of ways, and so there are like bits and pieces that I think are really cool and interesting and very Dr. Seuss, like um, stuff like the, the like the big musical number in the dungeon with all, yeah. the, all the green guys. Yeah, and, like, that seemed instruments. the most Dr. Seuss of all. Yeah, all these all these guys who are punished for not playing the piano, playing different instruments, and they're they're very that the sort of lists of characters that Dr. Seuss will create. That that mm-hmm. yeah, it was very reminiscent of that. And like the little beanie that the boys have to wear with the little yellow hand on top and there's like one part where the bard is running from some guards and and he gets like scooped up by these like arms coming out of the wall oh, yeah. and like that looks really cool. The the weird Siamese Jews connected at the beard. Yeah. <laughs> that twirl around. That was a very Dr. Seuss moment. But then stuff like the piano itself is like very sparse yeah. looking. Just does not look it looks like they like ran out of money or something. Maybe like, it's, it's just very like fifties atomic age, like modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, I forget, I think it's towards the beginning where you first, when he first goes into this world and it's just this sort of empty space with these domes coming out of the, the floor yeah. that he runs over that, um, 
Yeah, it's very it's very like mid-century sort of sci-fi aesthetic. Yeah, it's so like some parts of it are so like detailed and meticulous and some parts are just very stark and just like big flats with no detail whatsoever, just painted one solid color. Yeah. And it results in there being like several close-ups where people are standing in front of those and it's just like some people just standing against a wall. Um it doesn't do itself any favors. But then like the like like Dr. T's like suite where he lives and like the yeah. the mom's like bedroom and Dr. T's castle and stuff. Like those are all like very elaborate and mm-hmm. um it's just weird. Like you can definitely see like where corners had to be cut and where they didn't. And from what I read, Dr. Seuss, like that was his major frustration with it was that it was like that it didn't live up to his vision. No. And so much of this movie also got cut and is lost because there was, I guess, 11 that 11 additional musical numbers yeah. that, which is crazy because it already seems like there's a lot of musical yeah. numbers. Um, and I guess there's recordings of the songs, but the footage that they shot is, was totally lost. So we'll never get to see the full, um, the full extravaganza. Yeah. When it came out, it was a flop. And then a few years later, maybe they re-released it and they cut out one, musical number they cut out the uh, elevator scene where they they travel down to the dungeon and there's this like guy with this like executioner's hood where you uh, just see his eyes through it oh yeah yeah. and he's like sings this little song about how it's like a parody of like an elevator through a department store where it's like this floor oh, is right. like underwear and torture yeah. um they cut out that part and re-released it as a movie called crazy music or something oh yeah i read that that's they re-released this movie as just crazy music. Just crazy music. music, I think, is was the name. Wow. And they, that was the only difference, was they cut out that elevator scene. Huh. But I think that, like, I think when it first came out, the, they were really marketing it as, like, through the Dr. Seuss connection and as, like, this sort of fantastic... Like, yeah, it was a kid... I mean, it's a kid's movie, purportedly. It's It was rated G, uh, and Dr. Seuss was, I'm sure, at the top of his game. I guess. Otherwise, like, why would they give a movie. Yeah. I'm not really sure the timeline of that stuff. And Stanley Kramer was the producer who is known for these sort of like middle of the road, somewhat liberal polit like political movies. Like he did guess who's coming to dinner and, uh, inherent the wind and that stuff. Yeah. I read the, the ghost directed some of the scenes and Oh yeah. Cause the real director like got sick during shooting. So it's mostly Stanley Kramer. Yeah. Directing something him. happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think when they originally released it, I think maybe they 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 marketed it as um I want to say like like a prestige children's movie, like almost like like Fantasia or something like that oh, maybe, where it's yeah. like it's like a rich experience for the senses. And I think when it flopped, they were just like, "Oh, let's just release this as just like a B movie and it's crazy music." And yeah. It's I don't think they even like played up the Doctor Seuss connection or anything when they re-released it. Probably not. And I don't think that there were that many movies uh, on this scale, because this, despite its like you know aesthetic shortcomings, it, there did, there was a budget for this. Like, yeah. There, but kids movies, I don't think there were like high budgeted kids movies, at least live action ones, so much in the early fifties. Because this was not this was not a Disney movie, and Disney live action really didn't get going until like later, I think. Yeah, and it's not as um, even as it is a musical, and there are musical numbers, but none of them are like as elaborate or like integral to the movie as like a wizard of Oz or something like that, where it's like everyone is sort of like iconic or at least like has some sort of plot purpose. Like a lot of the musical numbers in this are just like, they're just like a song thrown in there. Yeah. Well, and there's not like the, the Disney kids movie, like 
continued even to like Pixar now, the kid always has to learn sort of a life lesson and there has to be some sort of deeper meaning behind everything. Whereas this, it's like the kid hates this disgusting piano teacher <laughs> and then ends up destroying him. And like, th there's no, like the kid is right from the beginning. Like there's no arc yeah. that he goes on. He's yeah. And I think that, that, that contributes to it being kind of, boring it's hard to it's hard to care about this when the movie opens with the kid like looking at the camera and being like hey this is my piano teacher and he sucks and yeah. i hate him and then he just goes to sleep and the whole thing is a dream and you know from the very beginning yeah, he has like narcolepsy yeah. or dr t is <laughs> drugging him one or the two because he like will play piano for 10 minutes and then just literally not off yeah the whole movie basically is just a dream sequence which you know from the beginning so it's not like you you know he's never care. really in danger but yeah, like the stuff, like the, you know, capitalism and Americanism and masculinity and all this stuff are intertwined into like one thing that, that Hollywood and society is like promoting to young boys and like mm -hmm. anything that goes against that is evil. So like, yeah, it conflates communism, fascism, homosexuality and pedophilia into like one toxic mix. Yeah. And, but, he, but he's got like the great role model, which is, I, I also want to talk oh, the about plumber, the yeah. plumber, Mr. Zadobowski or whatever, who also, I mean. Honestly, more than anything Dr. T did, the duet between the boy and the plumber was the most disturbing moment in the Oh, yeah. Because it is shot like <laughs> a love romantic duet. He puts his hand on the plumber's crotch, basically, yeah. and nuzzles into his shoulder. I mean, it was, it's it's crazy. Mr. They, Zabladowski. Zabladowski. They sing to each other like lovers. That's right. Yeah. They, like, they're like dosing off on an armchair. Yeah. Um, but just like the idea of what that guy is. So he's like... So the kid's dad is dead. Um, his mom is sort of like just a homemaker, but she's a single mother. Dr. T is his evil piano teacher. And Mr. Zabladowski is their like regular plumber who like is always over at the house fixing things. And the kid at the beginning of the movie describes him as like his best friend or something like that. And he's just like this cool, very masculine, not at all femi guy. Yeah who the kid desperately wants to be his father and just forces him to be his father. Like just he's like, you're dad. my dad now. <laughs> basically he like makes him go on a date with his mom. But yeah, it's the, the juxtaposition of this all American working class plumber works with his hands, uh, presents very masculine with, with this, this corrupt communistic, uh, gay piano teacher are like yeah. the two sort of polar opposites of masculinity. But one thing that was brought up in the High Camp essay that uh, was very striking to me watching it uh, the first time was the fact that, yeah, when the mom is under the thrall of Dr. T, um, because she's like completely hypnotized and like to the point where she doesn't even like remember that Bart is her son mm -hmm. and parts of the movie. In those parts, she is extremely sexualized. Like especially that first outfit they have her in where it's like half like business suit blazer, half like strapless gown, yeah, which is like so eroticized <laughs> compared to like what she's wearing in the rest of the movie. Um, but that's supposed to be when she's like under the thrall of this gay guy who is not into interested in her sexually whatsoever. Like throughout the course of the movie, Bart is like Dr. T's trying to like marry my mom. He wants to marry my mom and stuff like that. But it is very clear from the movie that he is not interested in her. Sexually. No, he's interested in, in the kid <laughs> and like, he's interested in the aesthetics perhaps of, of like making up this woman to look as 
sexualized and feminized as possible, but either as a distraction, because that's, I mean, also, to be honest, what happened is in real life, a lot is like a pedophile will seduce a mom in order to get to their kid. Like that's not out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, so that I could see that type of thing happening. And she, yeah, she's so, uh, I mean, it, it's just a classic. She's busy. She's widowed. She's going through so much shit and she wants her child to have, um, a masculine role model and, and thinks Dr. T is the answer when there's this sort of all American quote unquote, like non pedophile plumber right there the whole time. But I was also thinking like, I feel like this is like a trope of like boy focused, like adventure stories for kids um, where the real dad is gone. And there's like this cool guy who the boy desperately wants to be like mom's boyfriend. Yeah. And you know, depending on what it is. Like, I, I think of, I'm, I'm, there's way more examples of this and better examples probably, but the first thing that sprung to mind is like in the Iron Giant mm-hmm. where there's like this beatnik guy that's like basically the boy's friend and then he's like a love interest for yeah. the mom. It seems to like happen over and over. Well, because that's, the, I mean, the, the only sort of uh, socially accepted way for a young child to be friends with an adult man is to have him marry his mother. Because yeah. if it, if there was no familial collection connection and it was just, I mean, I guess there's like the, the big, the big brother club or whatever, Mm -hmm. or like that type of thing, or like maybe at church, but that's a whole other thing, but you can't, you can't just be an adult man having a friendship with a young boy. Uh, so you have to, you have to marry their mother. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've gotten into so many bad marriages (laughs) because of my little boy friends, but, uh, yeah, (laughs) I just, I wonder though if that's like we're seeing the psychology of the people who are writing these movies sort of bubble up. Cause like these days, every like big budget Hollywood family comedy is about a dad learning that he's working too much. Uh-huh. Because like every Hollywood executive is like an unhealthy workaholic and they're just like, and they feel guilty they about They feel guilty about it. And their ultimate fantasy is to just never do a job. And they think that is like what their family needs. Um, I wonder if these people just like have horrible relationships with their fathers. And this is what all these people want is like some cool dude to have been there when they were a kid and like sweep their mom. Yeah, their maybe. I Almost mean, it's like a, a Oedipal thing. Like they live through this older man having a relationship with their mom. It is weird to be so invested in your mother's love life. Yeah. Well, cause the, the, the plumber character is like a masculine fantasy of a little boy because he is, he's a working class guy who all he wants to do is, is, is be a plumber and like go fishing with him on the weekends. And it's, he has the, the same interests as, as like a 10 year old kid. Yeah. And he thinks that this, this is the, the masculine role model I want. I, I mean, and I don't, I don't think that the movie presents like the plumber character also as a pedophile. I think they're specifically saying that he is not, mm-hmm. but the way that either the actors interact with each other or the way that they're shot it, like their closeness is even more uh, like even more spotty and more like terrifying than, than because at least the boy is always distrustful of Dr. Tewilliker and like he never comes under the thrall of him. Whereas with the plumber, you could see him even being more susceptible to 
anything. That's true. Because he, he really does look up to the plumber. Yeah. And then of course there's the, the, that my favorite scene in the movie, the hypnotize hypnosis battle between Dr. T and the plumber where you just, the plumber, like, like Bart is like, tells the plumber that Dr. T's a pedophile. And he's like, you gotta go stop this guy. And, uh, and the plumber's like, all right, I'll go take a look. He goes up to Dr. T's room and Dr. T just starts trying to hypnotize him. And then we suddenly learn out of nowhere that the plumber also is like an amateur hypnotist. And so he starts hypnotizing. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They're they're like dueling hypnotists. It's very strange. And it's like a completely wordless musical dance number of them, like trying to hypnotize each other. And Dr. T is wearing this crazy robe. I think it's very cool looking, especially for the time. Oh yeah. The design of that robe he's wearing. It's like this purple, wizard's robe with like a black <laughs> starburst pattern on it um and i don't know if that's like is dr t-, t-, t trying to seduce the plumber and if so is the plumber able to fend him off because he's just as good at the powers of seduction like, well I they see to me it's like it. they're fighting over the affections of this little boy uh, uh they're they're romantic rivals i see and bart is the object of their affection <laughs> It's very fucked up. Yeah. Well, uh, the plumber loses and he becomes hypnotized for a spell. And uh, I don't remember what it is that eventually makes it. Oh, well, it's when he uh, Dr. T orders the plumber to be executed and Bart steals the order of execution. Yeah, she steals the order of execution. He brings it to the plumber. The plumber finally realizes he's in danger. And then there's something with this pickle juice. Because Dr. T also has all these like tinctures and concoctions. Mm-hmm. And the pickle juice somehow is atomic or pretends to be atomic and and sort of blows Dr. T. And then and then the last image you see of Dr. T uh in the fantasy world are a bunch of boys just carrying him off into doing God knows what. <laughs> and it reminded me of uh suddenly last summer when um that pedophile <laughs> gets eaten <laughs> by the boys. It's the same scene. Yeah, they carry him off and then they 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 use they have their way with his piano. Yeah. Um, and they play like crazy chopsticks yeah, or something. It's like not chopsticks, but it's like a, it's like 10 happy fingers is like the name of the song. Yeah. Um, the Dr. T cause Dr. T is also like a composer. He like, he like designed the, his own curriculum for like the piano lessons. Yeah. He's a piano supremacist. Yeah. He literally imprisons anyone who plays any other kind of instrument. Um, but yeah, Um, the idea of like his, his fantasy is, is 500 boys all playing the piano and the, the way that he talks about the finger, he like, he like lovingly describes the fingers and the movement of the fingers. And it is, it's so insane. Yeah. And it's, and, and something else is like striking about like the way the movie is structured is that all of the plot stuff is less than half, half baked would be a compliment for sure. Like the, the way the, the way they thwart this whole scheme using this like concoction, the, is made out of like all the stuff in Bart's pockets. Oh yeah. It's all these, um, these like signifiers of, of little boyhood. So it's, mm-hmm. he has, he has like a rubber band and a pocket knife and like all these things that like baby boomer boys just like had in their pocket. And yeah. It, he, yeah, he adds this to the, he puts them in a bucket and the plumber grinds them up like a mortar and pestle with a, with a, a bone that they find in their right. jail cell. And then it turns into a liquid that somehow is able to trap sound. Okay, and it's all yeah. just presented as if like, of course. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, um, 
American masculinity is is destroying sort of the the fascist femininity of Doctor T through these the signifiers of boyhood. Yeah, and like where these uh, these five hundred boys come from, like it just like they just show up. They're all white. I'll tell you that dozens of school buses just mm-hmm. show up with all these white boys, and like that's never mentioned. Like where they're coming from, it's never really explained who this performance is for, and like what. Is the, What's the end game for Dr. T to, yeah. to watching these boys play his composition? Yeah, it's just it, we're, we're led to believe that like if he's able to pull this off and this is the greatest performance of 5,000 fingers that anybody's ever heard, like th- this, that's it for him. Like he's will he, be in pe- a position in, of power yeah, for the rest of his he's life. He's in the throes of uh, erotic ecstasy listening <laughs> to uh, listening to these boys play play his giant piano and that's right and i think that's the ultimate like that it would just keep going on a loop forever and ever yeah and all this sort of like all that stuff like the whole plot is basically resolved in like the last 10 minutes of a movie that's not very long but feels much longer (laughs) than it is and but but the rest of it all the stuff about the grooming and the pedophilia and the, the two men trying to battle for the affections of a, like that is lovingly crafted oh, yeah. and is like super that's the whole movie that's the movie yeah. the rest of it like the the actual like point of the movie is like an afterthought or like the ostensible point of the movie yeah and then and then it's um after he you know blows up Dr. T or whatever he he wakes up in back in his little you know bungalow in the suburbs and uh and then basically forces his mother and the plumber to go on a date and then he forces them out of the house and then he picks up a baseball glove and he's able to go outside with his dog and play baseball. Right. Because real boys play baseball, play with dogs. They do not play the fucking piano. Right. The end. <laughs> and literally, if all the like elite men in power right now, like Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Clinton, they all either watched this movie as a kid or they were probably one of the 500 boy extras in the movie. I wonder how many of them were actually in this movie. Clinton Clinton plays an instrument. Yeah. Is he? Oh yeah. He was the president. Perhaps. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I was looking at these little boys trying to figure out who they are in our society right now. And if the erasure of Dr. T um, created, the problems that we are in today, the, the rise of, of the masculine baby boomer as like the ultimate signifier of power. It's definitely something you should show your children. <laughs> yeah. And every family should sit down and watch. I'm going to have children specifically so I can show them this movie. Can I ask how you do, how did you, how did you end up watching it? Uh, on, I just rented it on uh, Amazon prime. Oh, I found, I used, um, go watch it to find where it was streaming. Oh. And I saw the only place you can stream it for free is this service called Flix Fling. Oh, I saw that. Did you s- sign up for a I Flix Fling? For- Wait, did, you, did that cost money or you got it for no, free? No, you get a free trial. So ah, I wasted $3 then. You give it your money information yeah. and then you cancel your subscription and you get it for like seven days. But I got to warn everybody, if you're going to go look up Flix Fling, it's a bit of a scam. Is it all just like pedophile movies? It's all pedophile movies. It's $500 a month. <laughs> like, your information is directly given to the FBI. Two officers will show up at your house. I, I, I consider it almost a hobby of mine to try all of these weird like Roku channels <laughs> and like, like Apple TV services and 
our like Apple TV screen is just full of this. Oh yeah, junk. This, this garbage. Um, some of them have some surprisingly good stuff on it. I found a very good documentary about the Menendez brothers on like Tubi TV. But um, but this one is one of the worst I've ever seen. Where it you can rent like new release streaming movies through it for an extra fee. Okay. So you pay like eight dollars a month or something, which is like more than like Disney Plus yeah. or something like that. <laughs> and then and then it has like movies you can rent. New release movies, like you can get Joker for like $13 or something for an extra rental, but it also has ones that come with your subscription, but it does not make it intuitive to figure out which ones are ones that are free and which ones aren't. But I, I was able to figure it out. And I looked and they do have the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T only in standard definition, which I don't understand oh, because there, I know there's a high def transfer of it. There's a, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, on Amazon prime, it's high def and it, I, I think there was a Blu-ray release a few there was. years ago. Uh, Kevin Spacey did the opening remarks. Yeah. <laughs> did it do an in character? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh God. Remake of Dr. T with Kevin Spacey. That's his big comeback. Lean into it. Yeah. I mean, I, it can't be that hard to book. No, he's days. doing those murderous YouTube videos. Yeah, he, those are free. And then someone winds up dead every time. <laughs> it's, it's like the ring. <laughs> it is the ring. Kill him with kindness. Um, wow. Well, Flix Fling, don't sign up for it. Yeah, yeah, don't do it. Uh, Amazon is an evil company too. Um, so maybe get yourself a torrent site and get this for free. Well, you can rent it or through you, all of your standard yeah. services or sure. visit your local um, library. Yeah. FYE or Sam Goody. And you can, <laughs> you can get special order the Blu-ray uh, coconuts. Oh, was, coconut? yeah. oh I, I, in my hometown, it was Suncoast video. Oh yeah. We have Suncoast as well in the mall. Cool. Cool. I remember I, I snuck into a Suncoast video one time and bought a copy of Bull Durham because I heard that you see, Susan Sarandon's breasts in it. Oh, wow. And uh, I was disappointed. And you're still looking at Susan Sarandon's breasts today. Good... <laughs> still on the hunt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Before we go, I ask everyone who joins me on High Camp to, if we were to uh, write a third volume of the High Camp Gay Film Guide, what is a movie that you would nominate to add to the list? Brian Thompson. Um, I don't believe I saw the 66 66- batman movie on that list no uh that is a good uh someone a few weeks ago also oh not, no 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 but that's okay oh, um man. i think that 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 is re- a really very strange oversight i think because this guy is like a pre-baby boomer even i don't know that he would have even like gotten the camp aspect i was batman. thinking about it because just recently they came out with some of the um inter studio memos from the making of the, I don't think it was the movie in particular, but I think it was the TV show for sure. Yeah. Um, about uh, the creator of the show having to explain the camp factor to the executives who like didn't oh, really understand it. And it, it's definitely super interesting. Cause I also wonder if maybe the reason it's not in that book is because it wasn't, it was maybe seen as either too purposefully campy or not i don't perhaps know. i think i think it is a generational thing um because this guy is old enough because like on last week's episode i actually talked about uh the original adventures of captain marvel serial from the yeah. 40s which i understood the batman series more watching those because the ba- batman was the batman series was like a parody of those 40s serials 
And this guy, I think, is old enough to grow up with the original 1940s, um, like DC and all that stuff. And so I think he, it would have just probably passed him by. Like, because the Batman movies in the mid 60s were geared towards uh, little kids watching them, and he was already, I think, an adult. Because yeah. there's, there's so many blind spots that he has that I really do think are just purely generational. Well, so as not to repeat no, no, no. with the, the Batman thing, I will say that um, it's, not a, it's not a motion picture, but it is a motion picture event on YouTube. Oh. If you want to look up, I don't remember what television show it was on, but there is a performance by Jim Steinman, who's the guy who wrote all of the music for Meatloaf. Okay, he yeah. He wrote Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell 2. Not Bad Out of Hell 3, but I think Bad Out of Hell 4. Um, and he, after the success of Meatloaf, decided that maybe I'm talented enough to sing my own songs. He put out a solo album. Uh, and one of the singles from that album was the song Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, which eventually ended up being sung by Meatloaf on Bad Out of Hell Part 2. But Jim Steinman released it first as a solo track. And there's a video, if you just probably go on YouTube, you just search Jim Steinman, Rock and Roll Dreams, performance. You'll find this clip, because I think it's the only time it was ever performed live. Wow. And it's him in full futuristic leather, like biker from the year 2021 outfit, <laughs> which is like what his aesthetic was. Yeah, at the yeah, time. yeah. Just sort of belting out the song and not really having the range to do it, even though it's his own song. And then around him, there's this balletic performance of these two like very 70s. I remember in the 70s how like, Every man was gay and every woman, every woman wanted to fuck them. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's what I got from that decade. So it's like, it's like that the, the guy, it's a guy and a woman and it's the guy is like the most seventies eroticized, like super trim, super muscular. Yeah, it's like John like Travolta's little short shorts. Tiny yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And he like, at one point, like pulls off his shirt as they're doing this ballet dance around Jim Steinman singing the song, which the song sounds like something that would have been in, a, it should be in a musical, which is like all of his songs yeah. kind of sound like that as well. It's mind blowing. It's one of the best but, filmed performances ever. And I'm not sure it got across what anyone was hoping for it to get across at the time, or maybe it perfectly did. Yeah. And that's the question of camp. Is it, um, intentional or unintentional exactly. and does it matter? Yeah. No, I don't think it does. Uh, that's a great addition. Both Batman movie, Batman series and um, Jim Steinman YouTube search. Mm-hmm. YouTube, I mean, YouTube is the the medium of the next generation. So we're going to see more and more I watch more YouTube than anything else. When you asked mm. me what I've been watching, I just was embarrassed to tell you. No, don't be embarrassed. It's uh, There's so much content. And like, oh, yeah, it, it bugs me when people don't consider youtube videos like real entertainment because it there's so much content there are and there's like i mean you and i both are well aware of the phenomenon of people who post a video about whatever their weird obsession is every single day and no one watches it but they've been doing it for years and uh those are my stories yeah they're great uh 
thank you so much for coming on high camp and talking thank about you. this um this truly dangerous movie <laughs> <laughs> it's very subversive yeah but again cannot stress this enough it, it, every child should be forced to watch it. i think so i think they'll get uh they'll be terrified and they'll be afraid to leave the house and that's probably a good thing uh brian where can we find you what can you plug uh well my uh my show whatever happened to pizza at mcdonald's um has a very attractive website at uh pizza at mcdonald's.com i just went on your website today um uh before you came over and it was very it's very cool looking it's under like construction it. yeah. um and uh it's, it's also there's a lot of stuff going on on the twitter which is uh, uh at pizza at mcd's excellent uh, you can follow us here at High Camp at High Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me at Rucker Bry, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye.